Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, July 26, 2017. I'm Raya Kamir. Today on The Dispatch. Zoe Beery on a push to sterilize inmates. He thinks the best solution is to incentivize these defendants to stop having children. And Laura June on women entrepreneurs. If it's not worse than many people assumed, it's just as bad as we all assumed. Here's the dispatch. Power. Since May, a judge in Tennessee, Sam Benningfield, has been offering misdemeanor defendants who are mostly drug users a 30-day sentence reduction if they get a vasectomy or birth control implant. Last Thursday, Benningfield said this to a local news station. And so I hope to encourage them to at some point finally take you know, personal responsibility and, uh, and to give them a chance if when they do get out not to be burdened again with you know, additional children. Now, he's been inundated with accusations of being a eugenicist. Zoe Berry is here. She wrote a piece for The Outline about America's long history of sterilization and eugenics. Hi, Zoe. Hey, Ralia. How's it going? Good, thank you. So what is going on in White County? What's going on in White County is a couple of things. The backdrop to this story is that, like many places across the middle of America, there's an opioid epidemic going on. And Judge Benningfield, for a long time, has been seeing two things. Defendants coming in who have drug dependencies, who have children, and who he sees as uh, having their ability to sort of restart their lives being impeded by children, and some children being born drug-dependent. And the judge sees the situation, and instead of assessing that perhaps the social services available in the county are not serving its residents well, he thinks the best solution is to incentivize these defendants, or in some cases people who have been convicted, to stop having children or to really reconsider whether they should be having children at all. And he was pretty quickly inundated, like you said, with accusations that he was running a eugenics program. His defense was that, well, it's optional. You know, you don't have to do it. It's not like you have to take this offer to get out of jail 30 days early. But based on past precedent and based on the experts that I talked to for this piece, that's not really possible. You can't offer a carrot to somebody who is incarcerated, whose life the state controls, and then say that that's actually an optional choice for them to make. This has been going on in different forms um, for, for a very long time in this country, but to what extent is it even legal? It's not legal anymore anywhere in the U.S. Um, it's legal in some states, if the state can prove that there is a compelling state interest to sterilize somebody who is in prison in that state and the inmate gives their consent to be sterilized. Now, as I just talked about and as one of the experts who I spoke with for the piece, John Rassling, who is a researcher at Human Human Rights Watch, uh, told me, 
if you're in prison, your ability to give truly informed consent is revoked. It's really not optional. Um, but on top of that, even if we accept that it's possible for a prisoner to give consent for the state to sterilize them, there are states, particularly California, as recently as 2010, who have sterilized inmates without their knowledge and without informing the state or getting permission from them. And there are also instances where a pregnant inmate has wanted to get an abortion, and while that inmate was under anesthesia, they woke up to discover that they had also been sterilized while the doctors were performing an abortion on them. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How did we get to this point? These laws were passed in a majority of states, uh, 32 in total uh, by, the, by 1937, that allowed the state and state agents to determine anybody in their care um, who was uh, dim-witted, they called it, or unfit or genetically inferior to be sterilized sort of for the betterment of humanity. And it took until 1942, uh, I believe, until the state determined that you couldn't sterilize prisoners against their will. But states didn't start wiping eugenics laws off of their books uh, until the reproductive movement and the women's movement came to prominence in the late 60s. And then by 1973, most eugenics laws were gone. But what's sort of happening now is that funding has been cut over the last few decades and mental health services have really started to disappear that we're just putting people in jail. And so the very same people who in the early part of the 20th century would have been sterilized in many different uh, contexts and many different environments are now just being sent to jail where until very recently they're at uh, not an identical and not as quite of a sort of like legally sanctioned risk for sterilization, but where is that, that is still a possibility. Um, as you, you, you pointed out in the piece that most of the people who were directly implicated in this particular case, uh, 32 women and 38 men, were mostly poor and addicted to opi- opioids. Where does drug? Where do drugs fit into this situation? So I spoke with Alexandra Minna-Stern, who is a University of Michigan professor who wrote a book called Eugenic Nation about the history of eugenics, especially in the West and California. And what she said was that part of the justification early on in the eugenics movement were these studies of families in rural America who were white who were seen as being degenerates because they procreated too prolifically, they were supposedly alcoholic, they were promiscuous, they were just stupid. These are the words of the researchers, not mine. And what uh, Professor Stern pointed out was that the way that the researchers who were writing about these families talked about them is very similar to the way that some people speak about rural, poor Americans who are drug-dependent and swept up in the opioid crisis. And that was a really interesting connection to me to hear that from the very beginning of the eugenics movement, ideas about rural poverty and the, quote, you know, or the rather the supposed stupidity and moral degeneracy that comes with it have carried through all the way to something that happened last week in 2017. There's been a lot of um, backlash to Benningfield, Judge Benningfield's uh, program, what do you think will happen next? I mean, he said it himself in the statement that he released. He said that unless somebody sues him or orders him to stop doing it, he's not going to. That, well, I don't even know what to say to that. 
Yeah, apparently the ACLU of Tennessee, they did release a statement when the news story broke and they were not available for further comment other than to say that they are considering options surrounding this. So it's possible that they may sue or try to convince him to stop. But as of now, the program seems to be going forward. Well, in that case, we'll keep following it. Thank you, Zoe. Absolutely. Thanks, Raulia. We'll be right back. Power. It's a well-known fact that women entrepreneurs face an uphill battle in the fight to get funding for their businesses. But a new study suggests that it can actually be almost impossible. Laura June is here with that study. Hey, Laura. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, So give me all the terrible details. So uh, a just-published study found that um, about 97% of venture capital goes to companies which have uh, male CEOs, which leaves only 3% of, you know, female CEO-led companies uh, which get funding, which is bad, but it's not really that much of a surprise if you have ever read about VC funding. Um, And it's especially not a surprise, I think, to anybody who is a woman. So this new study, um, which is published in a journal called Venture Capital and was done by researchers at um, Babson College and Wellesley, builds on the previous study on the Diana Project. And what they have done is sort of updated what they found previously, which was that it was next to impossible for um, female-led companies to get funding. Um, that has changed only slightly. The, the percentage has, has of women-funded companies has gone up very slightly. But what the, what the new study finds is that, that there's no difference in, in performance of companies. It's not like female-led companies fail more often. They don't. That number, 97%, is, is staggering. But it seems as though it just mirrors, you know, other systemic issues in Silicon Valley and beyond, which leads me to wonder how many businesses led by women even sought venture funding. Like it seems like people would be, you know, it seems like these sort of systemic factors discourage women from even being in the position to to, to be seeking such funding. So women are um, seeking more venture capital than in, in, in decades previous, but they are still asking for uh, less money than men. Um, they're getting less. <laughs> and, you know, the overall figures are extremely stark. There's um, in one, the period they look at is 2011 to 2013. And they found that women received 3% of venture capital, uh, $1.5 billion out of $50.8 billion, which were invested in that three-year period. So, I mean, the disparity is extremely stark and they... Um, you know, spend a lot of time examining why that is. And most of it is just structurally, um, you know, VC companies are, are a boys club. If it's not worse than many people assumed, it's just as bad as we all assumed. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully the existence of the numbers will help rectify the problem to some extent. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes knowing about a problem makes it better and sometimes it doesn't. I think that um, one of the things that makes that's compelling to me about, about seeing these numbers, and, um, and which are shocking but are also not that shocking if you're a woman who writes about um, 
about funding and, and, biz- and small businesses is that, you know, there are other issues going on in Silicon Valley right now. There is widespread um, accusations of, of sexual harassment by women um, in companies where they, you know, they're all finally starting, like the dam is breaking open and people are starting to talk about this. And it's, you know, Silicon Valley has prided itself for a very long time on being, I think, above or, you know, holding itself to a higher standard than other sort of business areas, you know, the financial industry or other, you know, business concerns in the world. And I think that what we're finding out is um, it's not necessarily always better to any degree. So any um, any recommendations from the authors of the study themselves? So their um, basic recommendation in the um, at the end of their research is that future research and future attempts to understand this disparity focus on the VC side as opposed to the demand side. So I think they're addressing what what I think a, a question raised from this study is. They're saying, let's not find out if if women are requesting money less often. Let's look at why they're not getting it as often, um, which I think makes sense because um, anecdotally, I think that everybody sort of suspects that there are plenty of women with very good um, business proposals out there seeking funding and they're not getting it. And so I think they're suggesting that there are structural systemic issues with how the funding works and how that process works. Um, it tends to be based on a lot of networking that women just don't have access to um, or don't participate in the same way that men do. And so their um, recommendation, I think, really focuses on on why they're not getting the money as opposed to asking questions about if they're not asking the right question or if they're not asking in the right way. Well, that seems like a good starting point for a solution. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. That's The Dispatch. Remember, we do this show four times a week. And you can subscribe to get it each morning on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Alexa, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm Raya Kamir. More stories tomorrow.